when women learn to chart these observable external signs or symptoms that help them understand what's happening internally with their hormones, it is so empowering. And we really should be about empowering our patients with our information. I mean, that's why we encourage, you know, our patients to track what they're eating or our patients with diabetes to monitor their blood sugar so that they can use that information to make healthier choices to better improve their overall health and well-being. Fertility awareness-based methods are such an incredibly effective tool to educate and empower women and honestly engage men back in the conversation of family planning. Hello, and welcome to Pursuing Health. I'm Dr. Julie Fouché, family physician and former CrossFit Games athlete. Here, I bring you information and inspiration to help bridge the gap between fitness and medicine and support your journey toward your healthiest self. Thank you so much for joining me. Now let's get started with this week's episode. Hello, everybody. In this episode, I got to sit down with Dr. Marguerite Duane, who is a board-certified family physician and also the co-founder and executive director of FACTS, which is the Fertility Appreciation Collaborative to Teach the Science. She serves as an adjunct associate professor at Georgetown University, where she directs an introductory course on natural or fertility awareness-based methods of family planning. She's also a practicing family physician, and she has served on the board of the American Academy of Family Physicians, as well as the Family Medicine Education Consortium. She received her Bachelor of Science with honors and a Master of Health Administration from Cornell University, and then earned her medical degree from the State University of New York at Stony Brook and completed her family medicine residency at Lancaster General Hospital. And as you'll hear in the episode during her residency, Dr. Duane was surprised to hear for the first time from one of her senior residents that there was a way for women to learn to manage their fertility without any medical side effects, such as those that can occur from hormonal birth control. She wondered how it was possible that this topic hadn't been covered in her medical training, and this insight planted a seed that changed the trajectory of her career. Dr. Duane began to focus on learning more about these methods for her own personal health as well as that of her patients. She went on to complete training in the Creighton model of natural family planning and has since made it her passion to educate other healthcare providers and patients. You'll hear in the episode how I first learned about Dr. Duane and that I recently completed a course through FACTS myself. And this is a topic that I am very passionate about personally. Optimizing for fertility and pregnancy is something I'm digging into much more recently as Danny and I plan for starting a family of our own. And I hope to share more of these insights with you all here on upcoming episodes of the podcast. This is also a topic that I'm passionate about professionally, as the fact that doctors and other healthcare professionals are not routinely educated about these methods is a huge tragedy, and it further highlights how our medical system has been designed to be reactive with medications and procedures rather than proactive, striving to better understand how our bodies work and giving them the ingredients they really need to thrive. So this is a topic that can be very empowering for women, whether struggling with infertility, trying to avoid pregnancy without the side effects of hormonal birth control, or trying to uncover the root cause of a whole host of other women's health concerns from PMS to PCOS to endometriosis. Dr. Duane and I talk about everything here from the basis of tracking the female cycle, the efficacy of natural family planning, the science behind fertility awareness-based methods and even how to intelligently choose apps to assist in fertility tracking. So I hope you enjoy learning from Dr. Duane and that this episode inspires you to think a little bit differently about female health and fertility. 
Before we dive into the episode, we do want to make it clear that this podcast is for general information only and does not provide medical advice. We recommend that you seek assistance from your personal physician for any health conditions or concerns. So with that, let's get started with the episode. Before we dive in, we do want to remind you that we have made the commitment to not have sponsors on the podcast so that we can remain as unbiased as possible in our role as physicians. So the only way for us to keep doing what we do here is with your support. If you have enjoyed the podcast, you can support us by going to pursuing-health.com forward slash subscribe to become a Pursuing Health subscriber for less than the cost of a latte every month. In doing so, not only will you support our ability to keep putting out podcast content like this, but you'll also gain access to our workout programs, exclusive discount codes, and live Q&A sessions that we do monthly with our subscribers. So again, we would greatly appreciate any support you can provide please head to pursuing-health.com forward slash subscribe to become a Pursuing Health subscriber. Welcome to Pursuing Health. I'm very excited to be here with Dr. Marguerite Duane. Um, I just wanted to start actually by saying thank you for starting FACTS, which um you know, I have just recently been introduced to, and I just recently took the elective, but you are spreading information that is so important that's not included in our standard medical school or residency education. Um, and, and I love that it's so focused on teaching the science because I think a lot of people are maybe turned off by these methods or a subset of people are turned off just because of their religious roots. And so, you know, you do such a great job of teaching the science because there is such amazing science behind them for using these methods for our health. So. Thank you. I'm excited to talk to you more about everything today. You're so welcome. And I'm delighted to have the opportunity to talk to you today. Awesome. Well, I just thought I'd start with how I was introduced to VAX. Um, and then I want to hear your origin story of how you were introduced to these methods and how VAX came to be. Um, I actually had used, sort of used one of the methods started years ago. But at that point in my life, I was not very invested and did not really fully learn and so I was really relying on temperature as a sign, which as I now know, that is not the most reliable sign and often is better used as a double check. Um, and so when I first was introduced to facts by actually a former med school classmate, um, she told me about facts conference, which was in Cleveland. I wasn't able to make it because I was out of town. But then I did go to the facts conference last fall. Um, after the Family Medicine Education Consortium meeting. And that's where my mind was really opened. And I talked to some uh, medical students there who had taken the facts elective. And I said, okay, this is something I absolutely have to do. I have to learn more about it. So I just recently completed the facts elective and it was completely eye-opening um, and mind-blowing that we don't learn this stuff in our regular education. I think it's one of those things that's right up there for me next to nutrition about things that we need to absolutely. have in our curriculum that are just not there yet. So absolutely. I cannot agree more. Yes. Uh, so how did you first come to know these fertility awareness based methods? And then how did facts come to be? Sure. Great question. So I actually had never heard the term fertility awareness or charting the female cycle or temperature. I had never heard these terms until I was in my first year of my family medicine residency. And I'd actually taken some time off between uh, before going to medical school. So I was a little bit older. I was 29 years old when I started my residency. 
university. So I just graduated with an MD after my name and I was on OB call one night and I was doing what any good intern would be doing on OB call and I was getting all of my postpartum patients ready for discharge, writing their discharge orders, scheduling their follow-up appointment, appointments, writing their prescription for birth control. And as I was going through the, the motions of taking care of this, uh, my senior resident who I was on call with, you know, decided to use it as a teaching moment to talk about the uh, um, how different birth control methods worked and the potential side effects, especially in the postpartum period in women who are breastfeeding and whatnot. And as we were talking about the different methods and going over the various side effects, and you know, she said to me, did you know there's actually some forms of family planning that have no medical side effects whatsoever. And I said to her, well, no, that's not true. Like everything, I mean, you know, the birth control pill can increase your risk for blood clots and, you know, the IUD can cause severe pain and, you know, cause your period to stop and depo can cause prolonged bleeding. I'm like, even condoms can cause like a local irritation. I'm like, so they all have some side effects. And, and I knew that. And I knew that, you know, the research showed most women actually stop taking birth control within a year because of the side effects. And and my residents said, well, no, actually, there's a whole class of methods where women can learn how to chart the signs of their cycle to identify when they may be fertile and when they're not. And because they're not taking any drugs or using any devices that, you know, interrupt the normal physiology, it actually does not cause any side effects. And, and I was like, what are you talking about? Like, what do you mean you can like chart signs? Like, what signs? And she said, well, women can learn to chart cervical mucus or basal body temperature. And I'm like, what? What? I don't understand what, what are these, you know, family planning methods? And she said, well, they're natural or fertility awareness based methods of family planning. Natural family planning is the term that most people are familiar with. Um, and that was the term that she had used with me. And I, I said to her, I'm like, I've never heard of natural family planning. Like, what is that? And she's like, it's essentially what it says. Like you're using natural signs of fertility for family planning, you know, and couples can use them if they want to prevent pregnancy or if they're trying to achieve pregnancy. And I remember sitting there just, Stunned, and I was thinking, how did I not know this? Like, how did I not learn about this in medical school? Heck, why didn't I not learn about this in college when I was having issues with my own cycle and the only option that was given to me to manage my symptoms were birth control pills? How did I not learn about this when I was a teenager going through puberty and just starting to get my cycle? And, and I thought to myself, this is something that I should have learned about 10, 20 years ago. Why am I not learning about it until I'm 29 years old and a doctor? And that shock like really quickly turned into anger. And he thought to myself, this is wrong. I mean, I paid a lot of money to become a doctor. Like I should have learned about this in medical school. Um, but I was also like, well, it's not too late. I'm in my first year of residency. And so then I just like looked for information wherever I could find it. I, I decided at that point to actually find a teacher so I could learn how to chart my cycle for myself, again, to try and address some health issues that I was having. And that was eye-opening just to see the information that my body showed me when I paid attention to making cervical mucus observations. It was fascinating. And then, um, you know, I read the Symptothermal book put out, you know, by uh, one of the teaching organizations. So I tried to basically learn as much as I, as I could. And that was, that was phenomenal. And uh, a little bit later on, after I finished residency and I was practicing and I was having women that were coming to me because they heard that I knew something about fertility awareness and helping couples better understand their cycle so they could try to get pregnant. And, and I was like, wow, this is so cool. Like I have this skill set that nobody else in my practice has. So it was a real, it was a real advantage, but it was still something that was very limited to me. And then, um, in 2010, 
uh, when I was on faculty at Georgetown University. My husband and I had gone to Georgetown in 2004 and joined the faculty then. Um, six years later, I was still on the faculty, and one of my colleagues had reached out to me because they were looking for people to volunteer to teach small group electives on any topic related to medicine or healthcare. The idea being, we want to make our medical students more well-rounded. And, and so we were looking for volunteers. And I was familiar with this course, Georgetown called it their selective, because students could select from among 20 different electives. And I was familiar with it because I had actually taught one of these on breastfeeding, because breastfeeding is another topic that's not really well covered in medical school. And as physicians, we, didn't, we don't really learn about it as well. Um, and my husband and I had taught one of these on the Civil War and its impact on the medical field, how it led to the development of the nursing profession and surgery and advances and whatnot. So I thought this would be an incredible opportunity to teach even a small group of medical students about natural methods of family planning or fertility awareness-based methods. So that was, in, that was in 2010. And that was really the first time that I decided to take this knowledge that I had been fortunate enough to find out about because I happened to be on call one night with somebody who was trained in one of these methods. And I shared it with these nine other medical students, all of whom who had chosen to take my course. It was their first choice. And the best part was the students' reaction to the course. I mean, their comments were like, this is such an incredible course. It's like the most clinically applicable information I've learned so far at Georgetown. This is like basic reproductive health information. How come we're not learning about this in our reproductive physiology course? <laughs> um, <laughs> this, is, this is something, this is the quote that stood out to me the most. This is something that every medical student should learn because this is foundational for women's health. And I thought to myself, you're right. This is something every medical student should learn. And yet I knew almost no medical students who were learning this information. And that experience and that feedback really led me to believe like we need to share the facts about fertility awareness. And at that time, I had been connected to another family physician, Dr. Bob Motley, who is faculty at a family medicine residency program in, in Pennsylvania. And he was also interested in bringing this information to residents. So he and I were connected by one of my family medicine colleagues um, as well. And so Dr. Motley and I met and we talked about how could we bring this information more broadly. At the time, I was on the board of the Family Medicine Education Consortium or the FMEC. And this organization, you know, supports the bright ideas of family doctors. They support primary care. And I went to the CEO and said, Larry, I have this bright idea. Like, we need to create a collaborative whose mission is to educate medical students and other health professional students and the next generation of healthcare professionals about the science supporting fertility awareness-based methods. And that's how FACTS, the Fertility Appreciation Collaborative to Teach the System, started back in 2010. So we're really excited. We're, we're celebrating our 10th anniversary this year, but, but that's where it all began. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah. Well, congratulations. 10 years and we've come a long way. Yes. Uh, yeah. I think it's really interesting that you, that you first learned about it on OB uh, labor and delivery, because that's actually one of the places where I first realized how many women were actually interested in using these methods. Mm -hmm. I remember doing some postpartum rounds and asking women about, you know, what they were going to do for a birth control and being surprised how many of them responded like, oh, I do natural family planning or use one of these methods. And for me, that was eye-opening because I said, wow, there's a lot of women using these, but yet we as 
doctors are not necessarily trained in them or don't really know how to talk about them. Right. And I think a lot of women are afraid to talk to their doctors about it too, because they, they know that they know that most doctors are not necessarily well-versed. Right. Not only, not only they're not well-versed, but they're not necessarily very supportive. And, and the science bears that out again, you know, looking at the research, there was a study in 2010 of family physicians and obstetrician gynecologists. And what they found was only three to 6% of these doctors were familiar or knowledgeable about three of the modern fertility awareness-based methods, the Billings ovulation method, um, the thermal method, and, and one other method that escapes me. But less than 10% of doctors even knew about these methods. Wow. I mean, that's astonishing because you know, when this is relating to healthcare and women are seeking healthcare from their doctors or their midwives, you know, they should be able to get accurate, up-to-date evidence-based information about these methods, and yet they can't. And we have found this through some of our own research of facts. We did a survey of family medicine residency program directors and directors of women's health in residency programs. So these are the faculty who are responsible for teaching future physicians about women's health-related topics. And these doctors, less than a third, were familiar with modern fertility awareness-based methods. And that's the problem, is if doctors don't know about it, where do women go for information? And or if they go to their doctor, what's the reaction? Facts actually did another survey looking at women's experiences in talking with their doctors about their use of natural or fertility awareness-based methods. And it was astonishing how many women reported that their doctor mocked them, uh, made fun of them, laughed at them for choosing to use a natural method. And, and you know, as doctors, we may not always agree with our patients' healthcare choices. You know, they come in and they've got the, you know, 20-ounce Coke bottle and, you know, the candy bar that they're sitting there eating as we're counseling them out their diabetes. And we're like, we don't agree with that choice, but we don't laugh at them. You know, we use it as a teachable moment, perhaps, to educate them about why they may want to make different choices. You know, we may not understand, like that may have been the only drink that was in that person's refrigerator that morning, and that's all they had access. So it's frustrating, I think, for many women, and I'm sure many of your listeners have experienced this, where they've spoken to a doctor or a medical professional and been dismissed for their interest in these methods or been told, you know, well, that's all well and good, but, you know, you want something much more effective. You really should use XYZ form of birth control. And the woman is like, no, but I want to you know, track my mucus and temperature, or I want to use this method. And, you know, the doctor's like, well, you're not going to use the method I recommend. That's not fair. I mean, as physicians, we need to engage in shared decision-making and meet the patient where they're at. And if we don't know about these methods ourselves, then we need to learn about it. The problem was until facts came around, there was no organization whose mission is to share the science about all of the modern evidence-based methods of fertility awareness that may be available to women, you know, with our goal being educate the doctors so they can in turn, you know, educate and empower women with this information and support them if this is their choice for a family planning method or if they simply want to chart their cycle to better monitor their, their health and perhaps use it to address a range of women's health issues, which fertility awareness-based methods can be used very effectively to do so. Yeah, I think the and and the number of women that I think I've seen come in and are frustrated by other methods they've used hormonal methods or they don't like how they feel or they're having side effects and then mm -hmm. there's really, you know, most places there's really no other option for them. And so mm -hmm. um 
and you even in the facts course you present another state another study where uh, actually a fifth of women are interested in using these methods which is yeah. a fair number of women um we are not prepared to you know as a medical system that we're not necessarily prepared to help right well actually there have been two large studies of a general population of women asking their interest to use fertility awareness based methods one was done in st louis missouri back in 1999 and the other one was done in Arizona in 2006. And between those studies, they showed between 20 to 60% of women wow. were interested in learning how to use a fertility awareness-based method either to uh, prevent pregnancy or to achieve pregnancy. Uh, and I know for a fact, there's actually been another study that was just completed. I'm actually one of the co-authors on the paper we're working to submit to get published, where we actually asked women about their interest not only in using fertility awareness-based methods, for family planning, but also for monitoring reproductive health. And as you can imagine, you know, there's also tremendous interest in that. Why? When women learn to chart these observable external signs or symptoms that help them understand what's happening internally with their hormones, it is so empowering. And we really should be about empowering our patients with our information. I mean, that's why we encourage, you know, our patients to track what they're eating or our patients with diabetes to monitor their blood sugar so that they can use that information to make healthier choices to better improve their overall health and well-being. Mm -hmm. Fertility awareness-based methods are such an incredibly effective tool to educate and empower women and honestly engage men back in the conversation of family planning because it really does take men understanding their role. Uh, one of the things when I give talks about fertility awareness-based methods to women uh, and to couples, one of the things that they find most surprising is that women are actually not fertile most of the time. Mm -hmm. Healthy, normally cycling women who are not taking any birth control um, are not actually able to get pregnant most days out of the month. There's actually a very narrow window of time when they're physiologically capable of even getting pregnant. Whereas men, on the other hand, are almost always fertile. If they're healthy and they don't have any issues and they're not you know, too old, they are almost always able uh, to produce sperm and as a result um, to impregnate a woman. And yet women are the one who have borne the brunt of the responsibility for family planning and or have used birth control on a daily basis that can affect their overall health in many ways. Um, and yet men have not had to do that. Whereas with fertility awareness-based methods, it's because couples have to work together. I mean, at the very least, the woman needs to communicate to her partner, you know, I may potentially be fertile right now. So we need to think about that when we're making choices about whether or not we're going to be, you know, physically intimate. And that is information the men have to be more involved because they're not, if a couple is trying to prevent pregnancy, there is a window of time where they really need to, you know, avoid sexual relations, at least based on the research. Most of the research on the effect of these, these methods have been done when couples avoid sexual intercourse. Um, and so the men need to be a part of that conversation. So fertility awareness-based methods are educational, they're engaging of both partners, and they're empowering, um, especially for women when it comes to better understanding their health and for their male partners to better understand where, you know, their female partner is uh, at this point in her cycle. So it's, it's an incredible tool. Absolutely. And I love, you have a webinar called the female cycle as the fifth vital sign, which I think really sums it up. It's one of these mm -hmm. signs that, you know, before you pay, like I, I realized 
I hadn't been paying attention to it for the first 30 years of my life. And now that I am, it's incredible to think this has been going on for so many years. And I had no idea because I just wasn't paying attention, but it's so simple once you start tuning in. Right, right. Once you start tuning in, you realize like there are certain times of the month, you know, certain times in your cycle when you have more energy and you can work longer hours because you're just going, going, going. And there are other times of the month where you're like, uh, you know what, this is going to be the day when, you know, my energy was low or I'm more likely to have a headache and I just need to like plan a low key, quiet weekend at home without a lot of my schedule. And, you know, it, women can understand in terms of changes they may need to make in their diet because they, they find at certain points in their cycle, you know, caffeine affects them differently. You know, they, they need more water and by understanding what's happening in your cycle and where you are in your cycle, you can better care for yourself um, and your and your overall health. Absolutely. Um, one of the reasons I think that healthcare providers maybe are not as well versed or some of the misinformation that they have is about the efficacy of these methods. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about why that is, why there's such a misunderstanding and then what the efficacy actually is compared to some of our other birth control methods? Yes, that, that is a great question. And I think you're right. That is one of the number one reasons why medical professionals um, are not supportive of women using these methods. Up until very recently, the CDC or the Centers for Disease Control published a single, um, what they called a failure rate or unintended pregnancy rate for couples that use fertility awareness-based methods. And that failure rate was 24%. So basically that says to women, you have a one in four chance of getting pregnant if you're using a natural method of family planning or fertility awareness-based method. Well, I would imagine most women and most couples are like, uh, those odds aren't great. I don't think I want to go there. And doctors are like, why am I going to recommend something that's got a one in four failure rate when there are other methods that, you know, have a one in 50 failure rate or a one in um, 10 failure rate, right? So, but the reality is, is you need to look at where that statistic comes from. And this, the 24% unintended pregnancy rate was actually based on surveys of women uh, where they were asked what method of family planning were you using when you got pregnant? And they didn't necessarily clarify where the, was the couple trying to get pregnant, right? Because you can use fertility awareness-based methods to prevent pregnancy, but you can also use them to get pregnant. Whereas if we're taking the birth control pill, you're taking the birth control pill to not get pregnant. So clearly, if you get pregnant on the birth control pill, then the pill didn't work. But you might be using a fertility awareness-based method to prevent pregnancy, or you may actually be using it to achieve pregnancy. So you have to ask if they got pregnant, was an intentional pregnancy or not? Because in, uh, pregnancy using a fertility awareness-based method is not necessarily a quote-unquote failure. Uh, and the other issue is, is with this study, when they, again, they surveyed women, there's recall bias associated with it, but when they actually asked women which method they were using, they actually reported a wide variety of methods, but the overwhelming majority said they were using a calendar calculation method, which means they were not necessarily using a modern fertility awareness-based method. You know, when you, when you ask people like, oh, what are, when we, and we actually surveyed the women's health directors, we asked them what fertility awareness-based methods they were most familiar with. The number one method they were most familiar with was the rhythm calendar method, right? That method was developed in the 1930s, pre-World War II, pre-first antibiotics, right? Nearly 90 years ago. Science has advanced since then, and newer methods have been developed. And the key difference between the rhythm calendar method and modern methods is with the rhythm calendar method, women use the length of previous cycles and a formula to try to predict 
future fertility. Whereas with modern fertility awareness-based methods, women use observations of signs in real time, whether it's cervical fluid secretions, basal body temperature, urinary hormone measurements, to try to identify their window of fertility for that cycle. So it's as if you know, you're making your wardrobe decisions. Are you looking at, well, what was the weather last uh, June before I pick out my clothes? Or let me open up the door and see what the weather is like now <laughs> and making your decisions. So when you're using data in real time, you're going to be much more effective. And so with that study, it looked at most of the women were not using a modern fertility awareness-based method. When you look at effectiveness rates for individual modern fertility awareness-based methods, whether it's the Billings ovulation method or the symptothermal method or the standard days method or the um, Marquette method as an example, the, the correct use, meaning if couples are using the methods absolutely correctly, is very high. It's more than 99% effective. With typical use, meaning you don't always remember to take your temperature or you forgot to make a mucus observation, um, you know, we use it like we typically use things, not perfect, then the effectiveness ranges from 86 to 98% effective, meaning it's got a 2 to 14% unintended pregnancy rate. So you really have to look at the individual methods. But I also tell women, you know, there's a couple things. One, whether a method is two has a 2% unintended pregnancy rate with typical use or a 14% unintended pregnancy rate with typical use or a 24% unintended pregnancy rate, if the method doesn't work for you, you're not 2% pregnant. You're either 100% pregnant or you're not, right? right? And it really depends on the motivation of the couple to prevent pregnancy. For couples who are highly, highly motivated to prevent pregnancy, if they're willing to learn from a trained instructor and they're both on board and the partner is supportive, the method is likely to be much, much more effective. So there are a lot of things that you can do to use a method more effectively. I tell people, if you want to learn a fertility awareness-based method and use it effectively, learn from a trained instructor. This is not something you want to learn by reading a book or, you know, using an app. Make sure you're motivated to use it and make sure you have a partner that's supportive. I often use the example, like, if you want to improve your overall physical health, you want to lose weight, right? So you want to start, you know, modifying your diet or going to the gym. Do you just pick up a nutrition book and read what's the best thing to use? Do you just go to the gym and start using the equipment? No, you're going to be much more effective if you can go to the gym and work with a personal trainer who's going to show you how to use the equipment and help support you. You're going to be even more effective if you have a partner who's going to go to the gym with you and encourage you. And you're going to be even more effective if you're really motivated to lose weight. If you have a really good reason, like you're getting married and you want to fit in your wedding dress or Summer's around the corner and you want to get into that bathing suit and look really, really good. If your motivation is high, you're going to be much more effective. It's the same thing with using fertility awareness-based methods. If you learn from a trained instructor, are motivated to use it, and have a partner that's willing to support you, you your likelihood of getting pregnant is it will be significantly decreased if that's your choice. If you're choosing to use it to get pregnant, you know, you can use it effectively that way. That's why I like to say. Fertility awareness-based methods are the only true forms of family planning because couples can actually use them if they're planning to have a family or prevent having a family for the time being. So, but thank you so much for asking about the effectiveness. I think that comes up a lot. Again, I can't stress enough, you know, if you want to use it, simply using an app or picking up a book is not necessarily the best way with few exceptions. There are some methods or some apps that have been studied 
but mostly the studies for effectiveness have been shown that these methods work when couples learn from trained instructors and are motivated and have partner support. And I was surprised to learn that really when compared to birth control pills, the efficacy is very similar, both with very similar and typical use, because obviously with birth control pills, you can forget a pill, you can take it at the wrong time. There's a lot of things that happen with typical use and really the efficacy is very similar. Right. Right. I mean, yeah. And I think that's a good point because birth control pills, condoms, fertility awareness-based methods, they require user participation, right? You have to remember to take your pill. You have to remember to buy the condoms. You have to remember to check your temperature, your mucus, right? You know, methods like intrauterine devices or long-acting reversible contraceptives that women have implanted in their arms, once you have that put in, there's no user error, but you really, as the woman, have no control over that. Like once you've had, you know, an IUD placed, you can't take it out. I mean, you're at the mercy of the healthcare system to be able to take that out. You're no longer in control. But because you don't have to do anything for it to use it effectively, those methods are going to be much more effective. But fertility awareness-based methods, unlike birth control pills or long-acting reversible contraceptives, are the only methods without medical side effects. And that's what the World Health Organization says and recognizes. And that's really important because the research shows that 67% or 66% of women will stop using birth control within the first year because of the side effects. And the side effects are real and they're varied. You know, women, when they take the birth control, these are powerful steroid hormones. They don't simply work on the woman's reproductive health. They actually can affect her entire body and can cause side effects throughout um, her body. And the side effects can be very mild, but they can also be very severe. And it can include the risk of death. And that's an unfortunate reality that many women don't realize. And unfortunately, for better or for worse, I've had the honor of meeting families who have had children, who have had daughters and sisters and wives who have died from the side effects of birth control. And it's really heartbreaking because they say, nobody ever told me that this was a risk. Now, to be fair, the risk is exceedingly small. I mean, it's less than 1%. But when 10 million women are using birth control, that less than 1% is still going to translate to hundreds of women. And so it's important, I think, the most important thing is that women are adequately and accurately and fully informed of the various family planning methods, how they work, what, how effective they are, what's involved with using the method effectively, the side effects, so that they can truly make uh, an informed choice in terms of what's best for them in terms of their family planning. And Until very recently, fertility awareness-based methods have not been a part of the conversation in the medical office. And it's because medical professionals are not adequately trained in these methods. And so the facts, our mission is to educate our colleagues so that they can include these among the options that they may offer women. So women and couples can make a truly informed choice in terms of what's best for them. Yeah. Well, speaking on how these methods work and informing women, I want to just spend a little bit of time talking through the female cycle and the things that are happening and how that affects the different signs that we can observe. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, when you go to a a normal doctor's visit, the things that you're usually asked about your cycle are how long is it? You know, how long are your periods? Do you have heavy, heavy bleeding? Do you have any irregular bleeding? Do you have any symptoms around your period? And that's pretty much it. But there's actually a lot more that we can learn from our cycle. So could you kind of talk us through the cycle and how those different signs indicate what's going on in our bodies? 
right? Happy to and happy to explain how it really does serve as the fifth vital sign. And, and to explain this, I'll use the analogy that I use a lot with my patients. And as a family physician in Washington, D.C., I've worked in a variety of environments um, with patient populations from all across the um, the, spe- the socioeconomic spectrum and, and literacy level. So I've actually worked with a lot of patients who are very low literacy. And one of the things that I find very frustrating is my medical colleagues feel that, you know, patients who may have a low health literacy or come from a poor socioeconomic status, these methods aren't really um, a good fit for them because they can't learn it. And, and in my experience, I think that's absolutely untrue. And I'm able to teach my patients by walking them through the female cycle using the analogy of the seasons, right? So for those that don't necessarily live in the South, but live where they have seasons in, in the wintertime when, when it's cold out and the ground is frozen and dry, it's not a good time to go out and plant a crop. I mean, or to you know, plant your summer veggies. I mean, that's just not a good time. And when a woman in, in, in healthcare, we typically, one of the most common questions women first get is, when was your last menstrual period? When was the first day of your last menstrual period? The reason we call the period the period is it actually marks the end of the previous cycle. It marks the end of the previous ovulatory cycle. So the first day of the last period is not the first day officially of the new cycle, but it it represents the end. But we ask that question because the period is often the most visible sign. But once the woman's period ends, she actually is entering into the new cycle. And in the beginning of that new cycle, after her period ends, the woman notes, you know, if she pays attention, if she's charting her cycle, she notes days of dryness. If she's checking her temperature, she notes that her basal body temperature is lower. She's colder. She feels colder. So when you're dry and when your basal body temperature is low, just like in the wintertime when the ground is cold and dry, you can't plant things and expect them to grow. It's not going to happen. But after those few days, as the woman's hormones um, are being produced, the woman's follicle-stimulating hormone will stimulate the development of a follicle that contains an egg that's released so that the woman can get pregnant. As the follicle-stimulating hormone is acting on the ovary, the ovary produces estrogen, which is very familiar to women. And it's the estrogen, as that rises, it acts on the woman's cervix. That's the part of the female body when women get their pap smear. That's where we take that sample. But the cervix actually produces this fluid secretion or mucus-like secretion. It tends to be, it can be like cloudy or sticky initially, but then becomes more clear and watery. It's like raw egg white. And women will often note a sensation of wetness or moisture or even slipperiness. And so again, using our analogy, the seasons, you know, in the beginning of the cycle, the woman is dry and her basal body temperature is low. But as her estradiol is rising, she produces the cervical mucus and she's wet. It's just like in the springtime, as the rains come, it makes the ground more fertile for planting. So as the woman is estrogen is rising and she feels that mucus, that's when she's entering her fertile window. That's the best time to plant a seed, so to speak, or for a couple to engage in sexual relations if their goal is to try to get pregnant. That's the highest likelihood of getting pregnant is when you have sexual relations as your estradiol is rising and you're, you're making this mucus. So once the woman ovulates and that egg is released and it's available for fertilization, um, her body begins to produce another hormone called progesterone. And progesterone actually works to cause a rise in the basal body temperature. So the woman will actually feel warmer. 
it's just like the summertime, right? When the temperature is nice and warm, when we've got all these warm days, the flowers bloom, plants grow. It's a great season for growth, right? Progesterone, if you actually think of the word progestation, is actually the key pregnancy hormone because it actually allows for a woman to sustain a pregnancy if she has, in, in fact, um, been able to get pregnant. And so the rise in progesterone is what causes the temperature to rise. And the woman can note that, again, by checking her basal body temperature. So in the, it, it, after ovulation, in the second half of the woman's cycle or the luteal phase, um, again, the temperature is high because the progesterone is high. The progesterone also acts to dry up cervical mucus. So oftentimes women will note dryness. Once the progesterone is, is high and the basal body temperature is high, that's actually a sign that the woman has ovulated and there is, the egg is gone. Like once a woman ovulates, the egg is only around for 12 to 24 hours to allow for fertilization. If the egg is not fertilized that cycle, there is no physical way that the woman is able to get pregnant the rest of the cycle. So with a lot of the methods, you know, the drying up of the cervical mucus or the persistent rise in basal body temperature is an indication that she's now entered an infertile period of her cycle where she cannot get pregnant. I tell my patients, you can have sex all day, every day. It doesn't matter. Once you've confirmed ovulation has occurred, you cannot get pregnant. Um, and they're like shocked because, you know, oftentimes women think if they look at a guy the wrong way, they could get pregnant. We're like, no, that's not actually the way that it works. So, and again, it's like, back to my analogy of the seasons, it's the summertime. Now, if a woman did not get pregnant, her progesterone levels will start to drop and her estradiol levels will start to drop. And that actually sends a signal to the brain that there is no pregnancy and it's time to basically clean up and, and get ready for the next cycle. And it actually triggers the shedding of the uterine lining. And this is what we know is the period, right? So, just like in the fall, you know, when the temperatures start to drop, the trees start to shed their leaves as we get ready for a new season heading into, in, in, get ready for a new year as we head into the winter. So it's very analogous. The beginning when the woman first starts her cycle, she does not note any mucus. Her temperature is low. It's cold and dry, just like the wintertime. As she's approaching her fertile window, um, or she is entering her fertile window, the estrogen makes the mucus, which is just like the ring in the springtime, really making the, the ground fertile for planting. Uh, once ovulation has occurred, the basal body temperature rises, creates a nice warm environment for the pregnancy to flourish, for things to grow, just like in the summertime. And if there is no pregnancy, the body then sheds the uterine lining, just like in the, in the fall, the leaves shed their leaves and getting ready for the next year. So it can be a very easy way to explain that. Now, that's an overall general view. I tell women it's so important for you to learn your body, to learn your observations, because there's a lot of things that can affect this. If you're stressed, if you're taking medication for allergies, um, if you're not sleeping well, uh, if your diet uh, is not a good diet, there's a lot of things that can affect your observations. And this is where working with a trained instructor, at least in the very beginning, can be very helpful for women to really become in tune with their own body. So I think in general, as an overall view, it can be pretty simple and straightforward, but for women and couples, I think it's so helpful for them to really learn their own observations and work with a trained instructor to make sure that they can interpret them correctly. Yeah, it's just, it's fascinating the ways that our bodies work. I'm always constantly right. fascinated by it. And so you talked about 
some of these signs that then can be observed and tracked the things like the cervical mucus, the basal body temperature, and then hormones, which can be usually tracked in the urine. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you emphasize how cervical mucus is really sort of that key sign that all the mes- methods are based off of. And then the urinary homo- hormones and the temperature are things that can be used more as double checks. Exactly. Um, so obviously all this stuff together, all this information, as you've mentioned, can be used to help prevent or achieve a pregnancy. And when you have abnormalities in the cycle, it can help to identify problems with things like infertility or other health problems that are going on. Absolutely. Everything from premenstrual syndrome to polycystic ovarian disease to endometriosis, postpartum depression. Honestly, I think the greatest power of these methods is how it helps women to understand their bodies and really monitor their health. I mean, I am a huge proponent that we should be teaching girls the moment they go through puberty to chart their cycle. Because I think this is so empowering. What 14 or 15 year old girl wants to be caught off guard because she got her period unexpectedly? You know, maybe she's away for the weekend on a volleyball, you know, school field trip and unexpectedly gets her period. That's horrifying. I mean, teenagers that are listening to this are parents of teenagers. You know, they've had that experience. Or, you know, the teenage girl that gets, you know, whose mother brings her into the office because she noticed her daughter keeps having this discharge on her underwear and what could this possibly be? And, you know, maybe you need to check her for disease because I don't know why she has this discharge. And explaining to them after doing, you know, a thorough evaluation, like this may actually be her normal fertile cervical fluid. I had that happen in my office. I had a mother come in with her daughter. Her mother was aghast that maybe her daughter was, you know, having sex and she had this discharge and she wanted me to check her for diseases. And the daughter was, you know, pleading with her mom and not having sex. I don't know why I'm getting this. Like I take my bathing suit off after the swim team and I don't know. And she's so upset and like traumatized by this. And I had the, the young lady go through her cycle. And as she described her symptoms in this discharge, it was occurring in a very cyclical fashion. And I did her physical exam and it showed she was perfectly healthy. And I explained to the mother, this is her normal cervical fluid that happens, you know, four or five, six days. And the mother was stunned. She's like, I don't think I've ever noticed that in myself. And I asked her, I said, well, have you, do you use hormonal contraception? She's like, well, of course. And I'm like, well, actually hormonal contraception suppresses your normal hormones. So you may not actually be producing this. So, you know, in in fairness to the mom, she didn't know because she hadn't seen what her body does normally, naturally. She'd been taking birth control for so long. And, you know, and I've had other patients who get this and they think it's a recurring infection. And I just explained to them, like, no, this is normal. This is actually a sign of health. And they're like stunned. They're like, I had no idea. But where it can be really life-changing, I had another couple that I cared for who came to see me because they were having trouble getting pregnant. And the woman was devastated. She was only 27 years old, but she was convinced that there was something wrong with her because her husband, who was 31, had a child from a previous relationship. So she was like, well, clearly he can do this, but there's something wrong with my body. And in the course of taking her history, she described the fact that she was getting these recurring wanted to be worked up and treated for that because she thought that might have been contributing to her difficulty in getting pregnant. And as she described her symptoms, she was describing the current discharge. And it is every time I get this discharge, I don't have sex with my husband because I don't want him to get whatever it is that I have. 
she thought what her discharge was, was an infection. And again, I did the full history and physical and everything was clear. She had no infection. What she was describing was her normal cervical mucus. And I said to her, I'm like, humor me. Like the next time you have the discharge, like have sex. Like, like I can promise you the only thing you will give your husband maybe is a baby. And she was like, really? Because she was so scared. She, you know, didn't want to give her husband anything, you know, an infection. And three months later, they came back pregnant. And we thought it was a miracle worker. And like, literally, all I did was educate her about her body and how it works. And that was so empowering. Now, I wish it was always that easy for the patients that I care for. But infertility and subfertility are real issues, especially in, in female physicians. But I think, you know, these tools can also play a critical role in helping to identify underlying causes that may be leading to, to infertility in women. So it's very, very powerful information when women really learn to chart the signs of the female cycle. It's amazing. Those are great stories. And, and you know, you, even in the elective, you also presented some data about, you know, what normally our definition of infertility in medicine is basically 12 months without achieving a pregnancy with having random intercourse. Right. As you mentioned earlier, there's actually very few days every month that a woman could get pregnant and not, you know, being able to use that information can be very powerful. But you presented some data that, you know, taking a subset of these women who've had infertility and putting them through some sort of fertility awareness-based method and using that as a lens into what was going on with their health or maybe what may be driving that infertility, a overwhelming number of them were able to get pregnant within a short mm -hmm. amount of time. Mm -hmm. Whereas our normal medical system would then put them through sort of a lot of extensive and expensive tests and things like that in order to address the infertility. Um, right. You know, we're not necessarily using this information. Right. I think one important thing for your listeners to know is that infertility is a symptom. Mm -hmm. Okay. Infertility itself is not a disease. It is a symptom of an underlying issue. When a woman is healthy and her body is doing what it's designed to do, when she's cycling regularly and producing the hormones um, in, the, in the ratio that they're supposed to be produced at, and she's getting regular periods, then she should be fertile, again, at least three to six days per cycle. But if she has medical issues, whether, again, something as simple as low progesterone levels or more complicated, such as polycystic ovarian syndrome, these are things that affect her ability to get pregnant. So if she cannot get pregnant, to me, that is a symptom. And then I want to do a deeper dive to figure out why can she not get pregnant? What is the underlying cause? And the studies that you reference, one of them was a study of over a thousand couples who were trying to get pregnant. And when they were enrolled in the study, a number of them have been trying for years. I mean, the average time that these couples that were trying in, that when they entered the study was five and a half years. I mean, so they were well into the definition of fertility. Many of them had actually pursued assistive or uh, artificial reproductive technologies and had not had success um, of these a thousand, more than a thousand couples. And when they entered the study, almost half of them had unexplained infertility. Well, in my estimation, saying something is unexplained says we're not doing our job at making the diagnosis. And this study proved it because by the end of the study, of the nearly 50% that had unexplained infertility, by the end of the study, it was less than 1%. Wow. Many of these women were diagnosed with hormonal abnormalities um, and other issues that can be effectively treated. 
And it's really important to do that. And, you know, and, and I think this is shows like, cause we see a lot, again, you were saying if, if women are struggling with infertility and they don't get pregnant, then they're often referred for, you know, more invasive or expensive testing through uh, ART, assisted reproductive technologies like IUI or IVF, things like that. But with IVF or in vitro fertilization, typically what happens is that um, the doctors will extract eggs from the woman and sperm from the man to create embryos. So they actually create the embryos externally or in vitro in the tube, and then they implant them into the woman, right? And you would think if they've already made, you know, created the embryo, then they should have a hundred percent success rate once they implant it. But the reality is, is for women, it's struggling with infertility. It's not just a matter of getting pregnant. Their body has to be healthy to be able to maintain and support that pregnancy. And IVF doesn't treat that. Fertility awareness-based methods seeks to look at all of those underlying hormonal issues and treat the underlying hormonal issues to restore the woman's body to health or the men's body because men uh, contribute significantly to causes of infertility. So you want to restore them to health to allow them to be able to conceive naturally to support them because if their body is healthy, it's much more likely. And the studies that you quoted, their uh, effectiveness rates for helping couples achieve live births, there were two studies and they were very high, as high as 66 per 100 couples, which is, which is astronomical. But it gets to when you treat the root cause of the symptom of infertility, your likelihood of achieving success can be much higher. And, and in addition to that, you're making the woman much healthier. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Because women that go through assisted reproductive technologies, I mean, they have to do all sorts of things and take hormonal shots. And it's not the way their body is designed to function naturally. And not to mention the physical stress, but also the, the intense emotional and psychological stress and the financial costs. Absolutely. is very, very real. Whereas with the fertility awareness-based methods, it can, be, it can be much less expensive and it's much more geared towards restoring good reproductive health to the male or the female. Absolutely. So I want to get into some of the nuts and bolts. So you mentioned a lot of different methods. There's, you cover all of them in the elective. There's a lot of different methods. And like you said, there might be certain methods that are better for certain women. And it's important to work with an instructor first to learn these methods. So for someone listening who maybe wanted to learn more and start one of these methods, where could they find more information to get started? That's an excellent question. Well, through FACTS, although our focus is to educate the medical professional community and, and health professional students, we do offer one presentation specific for women and men to learn more, and it is called The Signs of the Female Cycle Explained. And as part of that presentation, we help them, we walk them through the things to consider when choosing a method. So we offer those as live webinars. In the fall of 2020, we will begin offering them as recorded webinars so people can access them at their convenience. Oh, awesome. um, stay tuned for that. Very also on our website, we have a section called About Charting. And under that, we actually list each of the evidence-based methods, and we include an informational handout about each method um, so that women can review them and figure out which method may be a good fit for them. The other thing that FACTS is in the process of developing is a shared decision-making tool. And that's really going to be designed for medical professionals to use with patients in the office to help them think through the questions that women may have when considering which method may be right for them. And 
you know, when people ask me, and I get this question a lot, what's the best method? Like, what, what, what is the best method? I want to know which method I, which one's best so I can choose that. I tell them, you know what the best method is? It's the one that's going to work best for you. And that's going to vary from woman to woman. And it's even going to vary for a given woman, depending on where she is in her reproductive life. I mean, personally, I have used every single method at one point or another in my life because at different points in your life, different methods may be more effective. As an example, I really encourage just teaching them how to chart cervical mucus observations. And for that, I really like the Billings ovulation method because it is one of the most simple and straightforward methods to learn. And it's really nice for girls just to learn that. For people that like to cross their T's and dot their I's and, you know, they like the double check, I encourage them to consider using one of the cross-check methods, a symptothermal method or um, a symptohormonal method like the Marquette method is a good, is a good option. Um, for women who have just given birth and are fully breastfeeding, I love the lactational amenorrhea method or LAM. Uh, it's a great method. I mean, unfortunately, it can only be used or it's only been studied uh, in terms of its effectiveness for women using it within the first six months after childbirth, but it's it's also an outstanding method. For women who have medical issues, um, they may be struggling with irregular cycles, and oftentimes medical professionals, well, if you have irregular cycles, you can't use a fertility awareness-based method. I'm like, if you have irregular cycles, you should use a fertility awareness-based method because you want to figure out why are your cycles irregular? That's not normal or healthy. And so for women who have issues with their cycle, I will often encourage them to consider using a method like the Creighton model or FEM, which stands for Fertility Education and Medical Management, as both of these models have programs specifically for medical professionals to train, to learn how to use the chart to really aid in diagnosing and treating uh, common underlying um, causes of a range of reproductive health issues. So there's lots of options, but our website, factsaboutfertility.org, can provide an excellent um, first start to look for the information. And then if you're interested in looking for a teacher in your area, FAX is actually working right now on putting together a database that includes teachers of all methods so that you'll be able to uh, I hopefully identify a teacher near you or one that you can access online. That is amazing. I know a lot of the methods also, some of them come with, along with apps because now Everyone has to have everything on their smartphone instead of using paper. But um, there's also a ton of other apps. If you go on the app store, there are a million and one mm -hmm. apps. So for people listening, how do they sort through all of the apps out there to find one that's really science-based and that's going to be more effective? Right. Excellent question. I, and I think you're right. I, I think fertility tracking apps are the number two category of apps after health and wow. tracking. It's shocking how many apps are out there. And I actually did not fully appreciate how many apps are out there because I'm not necessarily an app person. I'm a little old fashioned. I like to chart on paper. Um, but I didn't realize how many apps were out there until my organization, Facts, we were doing a review of the literature looking at the effectiveness of the various methods. And we kept coming across all of these apps. And so we then decided to actually do a review of fertility tracking apps that were specifically marketed for couples learning to use a method to prevent pregnancy. Okay. So we did this study. Unfortunately, it's an old, it, the study is old now. It was in 2015. But when it comes to apps, that's like, it's old. But we looked at, at that time, there were nearly 100 apps on the market. 
we had to exclude over half of them from the study because they were actually not based on a modern evidence-based method. Some of these apps would allow women to input cervical mucus observations or basal body temperature observations, but the app would then calculate a predictive fertile window based purely on dates and would ignore the information of the signs that the women were entering. So we ended up excluding a lot of those apps from our study. Um, and some of the apps had disclaimers like deep in the fine print, like you should not use this app to prevent pregnancy, even though like they were being marketed for that. And so that's not really, you know, truth in advertising. So FACTS did a study. If you go to the FACTS website, factsaboutfertility.org, and just search apps, you can get a link to a blog about the study, which also includes a one-page handout with the apps that we recommend. So again, there were nearly 100 apps on the market. We excluded over half. We ended up rating about 40 apps. 30 of the apps predict the fertile window, and 10 do not predict the fertile window. And when I was doing a lot of media about the study after it came out, people were like, oh, you want, the, you want to use an app that's going to tell you when you're fertile. And I thought to myself, no, because if you learned how to use the method, you should be able to identify when you're fertile. And I tell women, you're smart. You're smarter than your smartphone. <laughs> you, know, you shouldn't rely on your smartphone to tell you when you're fertile. You should rely on the knowledge that you have gained through tracking the signs of your fertility, right? I think apps can be great tools to facilitate tracking the cycle, but for the most part, women should not rely on them. Um, so again, there were 40 apps that we rate, ranked. Um, of those that predicted the fertile window, there were, there were 10 that we would recommend. And of those that did not predict the fertile window, there were five that we were recommended um, based on their high level of accuracy um, and uh, evidence for effectiveness. Now, since our study has come out, um, there have been a couple of apps, specifically the Natural Cycles app and the DOT app, that have actually done effectiveness studies of the apps themselves. So um, those apps may be reliable because they actually have done studies showing if you use the app solely, then you can use this. Now, I believe with both the Natural Cycles apps and the DOT app, when they were doing the study, couples um, may or may not have also used barriers so it's hard to say if you're not using barriers, if it would be equally as effective, but those apps do have studies to show their effectiveness. Now, maybe you have women that want to use an app because they just want to better understand their health, right? They're not necessarily using it to plan pregnancy. Maybe they're using it because they're suffering really miserable, painful period cramps and, you know, maybe consulted, you know, the internet and learned, well, this could be endometriosis. There is an app that's actually out there called Fendo, spelled P-H-E-N-D-L, that was actually designed by researchers at Columbia University for women who may be suffering with endometriosis to better um, capture and describe their symptoms and track their symptoms. So I believe there's also an app in development now specifically for youthful women who are dealing with polycystic ovarian syndrome. And there are other apps like the FEM app, Fertility Education and Medical Management, that is really used for women who are um, who are tra tracking their cycle for health reasons. Some of the methods that teach fertility awareness-based methods, like couple-to-couple -couple league organization, as example, teaches the symptom thermal method. They have their own app called Cycle Pro Go, and women can use that app uh, as well if you learn a method. And Billings also has an app. So there are a lot of apps out there. I would say start with you know the research that we have done. Um, make sure there's no disclaimer in the fine print. If you can try and figure out whether or not it's actually based on an evidence-based method, that's a good 
um, a good check. And if you're still not sure or have questions, you can try to email facts at info at factsaboutfertility.org and we can see if we can help you figure out which app may be, may be best for you. Or if you're learning a method from a trained instructor, talk to your instructor because they may have ones. Um, for example, neofertility is another method and they have a neofertility app. So those instructors would recommend women use, use that app. So there are a number of them out there, but I do caution women to beware. There's also some issues with apps where they collect data, and a lot of this data is very personal and private, and so I would caution you there as well, um, because that can be very, very concerning. Apps like the Kindara app, they've got millions of users. I know they collect data, but I also know that they only release that data in aggregate, so not individual. But there, there's lots of potential benefits, but like anything with technology, there's also serious potential pitfalls. So just be cautious. I would, again, encourage you to ask your instructor what app they would recommend and check the FACTS website and our app's paper to see what we would recommend. That is so much great information, and there's a lot out there for sure. So what if a woman starts tracking her cycles, or even maybe before that, and she knows that she's having some symptoms or she's worried about some underlying health condition going on, how would she find a healthcare practitioner who is versed in these methods? Another excellent question, um, and it can be really hard. I mean, I've had patients that I brought in my charts to with this one doctor, and he like looked at them and like handed them back to me without even like really looking at them, and that can be so frustrating. And I try to tell my medical colleagues if a woman comes in with three months of charting, that is like three months of daily hormonal data. Like that is a gold mine. And, and as a physician trained in FABMs, I so appreciate that. One of the challenges, though, because this, these methods are not taught in, in most medical schools and health professional schools, there are so few doctors out there. And, you know, we've discovered this through facts when we were doing our shared decision-making study. We scoured the internet. We contacted every NFP and fertility awareness organization to try to identify physicians and nurse practitioners and midwives. And we came up with a total of, I think, 574 medical professionals all throughout the United States. Wow. 574 medical professionals for 300 million people. Like, that's insane. I mean, you talk about access issues. And then as we dove deeper, a lot of those physicians were like radiologists who had learned the simple thermal method for their own personal use, or they were pathologists. I mean, they weren't actually using these methods in practice. So Practically speaking, the number of FABM-trained medical professionals in the United States is probably less than 500 medical professionals. And again, FACTS right now is working on building a database of FABM-trained medical professionals. Uh, the methods that most commonly train medical professionals, the Creighton model and have on their websites uh, ways that you can access or identify those physicians or medical professionals trained in those specific methods, but there's no one universal place where these, um, the, there's a, a list of doctors. But that is actually what FACTS is actively working to develop um, as we speak so that women can do that. And um, there was just a summit, the Unexplained Infertility Summit, and I have been getting emails from women that have attended that. So again, if you're desperate and you can't wait for us to publish our database, feel free to email us at info at factsaboutfertility.org. Let us know where you're located and we will do our very best to try and help you locate a doctor or medical professional in your area. But beware, it, it can sometimes require traveling 
30 minutes, an hour, two hours or more. The good news is, is more and more, as I refer to them, restorative reproductive uh, medical professionals. These are physicians and nurse practitioners whose goal is to restore the reproductive health system to normal health. More and more of these restorative reproductive medicine professionals are actually doing telemedicine and are able to offer services that way. And I know in my own practice, as a direct primary care physician, I have a number of patients that I'm able to manage who live one, two, three hours away from where I'm located, but I'm able to do a lot with them via telemedicine. So um, again, factsaboutfertility.org, that's where we will be releasing the database. And until then, you can email us at info at factsaboutfertility.org, and we will help you locate an FABM-trained or restorative reproductive medicine physician. That is amazing. That is going to be a very useful resource. So I'm like... Yes that too. Yes. And we need to make sure you add your name to the list. So, and if you are a medical professional listening and you're trained, definitely contact us so we can get you added to the list. Yes, absolutely. Okay. I want to start wrapping up, but before I get to my final three questions that I always ask at the end, I was wondering if you could just touch on your experience with Teen Star and about using these methods in teens. You, you sort of touched on it earlier, but, but the value and how teens might start to learn these methods too. Right. Yes. And in, in full disclosure, um, I am trained in multiple methods. Teen Star is one of the methods, although Teen Star is not its own method. Teen Star is a program that integrates the Billings ovulation method um, for instructing adolescents, girls and boys about their reproductive health. Um, as a woman, I'm trained to teach young girls. Uh, the program also trains men to teach young boys. And through Teen Star, young women will learn to track the signs of their cycle, specifically cervical mucus observations. Again, really just to better understand what's happening in their body. So they have a, an idea of when their next period is going to be, what this discharge means, where they are in their cycle. So it's very, very empowering. Teen Star was actually developed in the 1970s. So oh. it's been around for a lot longer than facts. I mean, it's been more than 40 years that this method has been, uh, this program has been around. And it was developed by an obstetrician gynecologist, Dr. Hannah Klaus. And it's taught, at this point, it's actually taught primarily overseas, um, in Chile, in Korea, um, all over, and uh, in, in Uganda and other places in Africa. And they've actually done research of Teen Star. And the director, the founder of Teen Star, Dr. Klaus, is very explicit that it is not an abstinence-only program. She says you cannot simply tell young people to just say no when their hormones are screaming the exact opposite. You have to help them understand what's happening with these hormonal changes and help them to understand like their powerful you know, ability um, given the, the physical changes that they're experiencing. And so she's all about educating these, these young girls about the way their bodies work and, and why they feel the way they do, and really that they can be the masters of their own fate. They can take control. And the studies of Teen Star has shown that when young girls go through this program, they are more likely to delay the onset of sexual activity. Mm. Um, or if they have been sexually active, they're more likely to discontinue sexual activity because they recognize the potential that comes through a sexual relationship at a young age, and they recognize the impact that can have. So there have been a couple of different studies that have demonstrated this, and I think that's really, really important. Again, I'm a huge advocate of teaching young girls this. Teen Star is one program. There are other programs um, as well. FEM also offers a Teen FEM program. And I think, you know, we need to think about fertility awareness 
well beyond the role of family planning, because I'm not teaching teenagers to chart their cycle for family planning purposes, but really it's about monitoring and managing your reproductive health. And I think it's so important to, to empower adolescents with this information, starting at a very young age. Absolutely. So they don't have to learn about it when they're 30 like us. <laughs> exactly. Um, okay. So three questions I ask at the end of every podcast. Uh, the first one is, what are the three things that you do on a regular basis that have the biggest positive impact on your health? Great question. I had to think about that one for a little while when you sent it. I think the most important thing I do every day for my health is I go for a 30-minute walk with my daughter. I have a daughter who just turned 12 years old, and this past year I was homeschooling her. And for her phys ed, we decided every morning after we dropped her siblings at school, we would go for a 30-minute walk. Even in the midst of uh, the events of recent months when everyone has been home, like that's been really critical to our daily day. We get started, we do a 30-minute walk. It's a wonderful way to connect with her on a one-on-one -on -one basis. It's great for my physical health because I don't know that I would go for a 30-minute walk every day if I didn't have her saying, can we go for our walk? Go for our walk now. So I think that's been really, really helpful. Um, I like walking a lot. Uh, and so as a direct primary care physician, another thing that I offer for my patients is my patients can schedule a walk with their doctor. And I don't know if it's, I mean, it's good for my health, but I think it's also good for my patient's health. They can schedule a 30-minute walk with me, and it doesn't count as a, one of their official visits, and I'm happy to walk with them and talk with them about whatever they want. I had one mom who was a single mom who was struggling with a toddler and, like, bedtime routines, and so we ended up, our walks were all about, like, you know, helping her establish good evening routines to help her toddler settle down for the night. I've got patients with chronic diseases like high blood pressure and diabetes, and we go for regular walks, and they're like, it's so good because I need to do this for my health. And and the reason I don't like consider it a visit for them is I'm like, I need the 30 minutes of walking. <laughs> That's really, really, really important. Um, another thing that I do for my health is I, I try to really stay connected to friends and family. Um, I have uh, an older sister, lots of sisters, but I have an older sister. She's a year older and she's also a physician. I'm a family physician and she's the opposite end of the medical spectrum. She's a trauma critical care surgeon. She's also a triathlete who did her first Ironman in Houston. I'm like, that's just insane. <laughs> um, but she has had this tradition for years of doing happy Sunday calls where she calls everyone in the family on Sunday to just wish them a happy Sunday and check in and connect. And I really look forward to those. And so I try and do regular calls with other family members and also, you know, some of my dear friends because I think it's so important, especially in this age of technology where everything seems to be about the internet and email and, you know, we've lost touch with with the importance of connecting with people. And on that last note, the, the last thing that I do for my health and well-being in terms of connecting with people is I got four amazing children and my favorite thing to do with them is to cuddle with them. And I do that every morning and every night. And I think we can overestimate the power of the human touch mm -hmm. and the importance of hugging the people that we love. And this is this is a difficult time where we've really been limited in our ability to express, you know, physical affection for one another. But again, as a doctor, I've told my patients, you know, hug your children even more these days. Spend time cuddling with them on the couch and reading them books and providing that physical contact and reassurance and connectedness that we're, we're all connected. We cannot live our lives in isolation and in a vacuum. Everything we do impacts 
everything, you know, everyone else does. And we really have to think about that. So I really try to establish that, that physical connection and remind them of the importance of loving one another and telling each other that we love you, you know, telling friends and family that we love them. So they feel that sense of, of security and love. Honestly, and I don't know if you've experienced this as a doctor. I mean, I love what I do as a doctor, but I think in terms of people's health, what matters most is not what I can do as a doctor. It's not the medications I can prescribe or the tests that I can run. It's really so much more about that socio-emotional, psychological um, health in addition to the physical. And I think for too long, our healthcare system is focused on the physical aspects of health, and we've lost sight of the, the broader aspects of health. And that's why I love being a direct primary care physician, because I have so much more time with my patients, and I can, especially women with reproductive health issues, have the time to address that and have the time to build the relationships. That is what's so important, um, you know, both personally for individuals, and I think professionally as physicians and other medical professionals is to really connect and build relationships um, with, with friends, family, and patients. Absolutely. That's what life's all about. And then, if, you know, in the end, it's all about the relationships and the people. Yep. Um, okay. What about one thing that you think would have an impact on your health, but you have a hard time implementing it or something you're working on right now? <laughs> I think the biggest thing I struggle with is sleep and getting good sleep. And it's not great because sleep is so important. And I think it's so important for people to get a regular night's sleep. And one of the things I struggle with and you know, I see my children struggling with it. I have patients that struggle with it. It's just the screen time and the connectedness to the screen. And for me, being on a screen late at night, right before I go to bed, or just checking my phone one more time before I go to bed. And, you know, sometimes then I'll start like scrolling through emails or scrolling through news articles. And like 35 minutes later, I'm like, oh, now it's after one o'clock in the morning. I should have been asleep an hour ago. So that's something that I definitely struggle with. And I encourage my patients. Um, you know, keep screens out of the bedroom. Like they shouldn't be in the bedroom. And, and so I'm really struggling with that. I, I feel challenged because as a direct primary care doctor, all of my patients have my phone numbers. So they can call me directly. So I always want to be able to have that. But the reality is in the four years of being a direct primary care physician, with every one of my patients having my cell phone number, I think I've gotten like one call between midnight and 7 a.m. And yet I still feel like, well, just in case there's an emergency. <laughs> but I really need to be better about not looking at my screen while I'm, especially while I'm in bed and, and trying to get to sleep earlier so you can get a more regular sleep. Yeah, I think that's something we can all definitely improve on. All right, yeah. last question is, what does a healthy life look like to you? What does a healthy life look like to me? Um, I think having a strong community of family and friends, having um, work, that you're passionate about, uh, things that you love to do, things that bring you great joy, um, having a community in which you can, can connect to, having time for fun. I mean, again, that's one of the things I should really work on. I don't, I tend to be a little bit of a workaholic, but I should really make more time for fun, like sitting by the pool, which I may go do after this, um, just to really enjoy enjoy the day. And I think, again, that gets back to the walks of my daughter. I love that because it gives me a chance to just to enjoy life. So yeah, I think a healthy life is about balance. It's about, you know, having balance between um, our work and our family and, and having that connectedness with our family and having, you know, regularity in terms of 
our our diet and our eating and our sleep, um, really just trying to find that that balance. And in terms of women's health, I mean, that's what it's all about, having that beautiful balance of the reproductive hormones that create this amazing, intricate cycle. Uh, it's really just, it's all about the balance. And when we establish that, we see it. We see it in the way our body responds and the signs that our body sends us. And so that's what I think a healthy life is all about. It's about establishing a healthy balance in everything we do. And our bodies will reflect that balance beautifully. And women can learn to see that when they look at the signs of the female cycle. I love that. It's a beautiful thing. Well, thank you so much. This has been amazing. And thank you again for everything you are doing and for being such an advocate for getting this information out there to the medical field and really to women in general, because obviously every person that you teach that then trickles down to all of their patients. And I know for me personally, it's been very empowering and I can't wait to be able to help my patients better with this information. So thank you're so you're so welcome. And I just want to say, I think that's such an important point because we started the conversation with how I first heard about it and how it was one of my senior residents who said something to me and I'll be called one night. And the funny thing about that story is that the woman who told me about it is a very quiet, introverted person. She's not an outspoken advocate, but she really had benefited from it. And we, she's actually now one of our fact speakers. Her name is Dr. Pearl Fong Ramirez. And we talk about it. She's like, I don't actually remember that night on call. I don't remember having that conversation. I'm like, well, it was late. And but what I what I like to remind her is like, you never know the impact that your words may have. I mean, that night for me was transformational. It totally changed the direction of my career and ultimately my life. And now I'm a passionate uh, educator of fertility awareness based methods. And so I would say to your listeners, I mean. You don't know if you recommend this podcast to one of your friends, what they may take away from it and how they may be benefited from it. So never underestimate the power of your words and the power of your ability to influence others by simply sharing the facts about what you know. So thank you. Thank you so much. guys. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode. As always, I like to recap some of my biggest takeaways after the interview, and there was definitely a lot to unpack here. The first takeaway that I had was about the importance of listening to our bodies. Cycle tracking using fertility awareness-based methods is just one example of how our bodies give us powerful information if we pay attention and if we know how to use it. As Dr. Duane talks about, the same is true for a lot of other signs. Blood sugar and heart rate and heart rate variability are two that come to mind as some that the general population are more interested in tracking lately. But intelligently interpreting signs like these in the context of the symptoms that we may be having can be very powerful in uncovering what our bodies are missing or what they need to thrive. My second takeaway was about how important it is that we empower all women with this type of information. I love how Dr. Duane talks about her work with Teen Star toward the end of the episode. So often fertility awareness-based methods are taught solely as a means of natural family planning, but knowing and understanding how our bodies work is so empowering for women of all ages and all stages of life, whether we're teenagers and we just want to know when our cycle is going to come, or we're in our childbearing years and we're looking to maximize our fertility or whether we're going through menopause. 
My third takeaway was that we need to empower all physicians and healthcare professionals with this information. The fact that this is not required learning in all medical schools and residency programs to me is a huge tragedy. The topic of fertility awareness methods goes right up there with nutrition, sleep, exercise, and stress management when it comes to topics that are underemphasized in medical schools, but in fact provide very crucial information when it comes to supporting the body to maximize health, in my opinion. So I would love to see this included on a more routine and widespread basis in medical education. I hope you had some great takeaways from this conversation as well. 